DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Jazz are back at it. Wednesday night, tomorrow night against the Denver Nuggets. Nuggets are at home playing the Blazers tonight, so they'll be going back-to-back for what that's worth. Worth nothing to me. Nothing? No. It's got to be worth something. No. It's only worth something if you win. Well, that's true. But it ought to be an advantage. Whether it's an advantage they cash in on or not is another question. Well, then it's not an advantage. <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't care about that. It's about this team. This team faces an interesting dilemma here because Conley's back, and they're going to ride with Conley because he's a 12-year vet, and he's proven himself, and they're paying him $30 million bucks, and that was their big acquisition in the offseason. So he's back, and as Locke says in the – promo that they run with Tony and Austin you know if they're going to be that great team in the playoffs you're going to need Conley so they're going to ride with him but the question becomes at what expense because clearly Joe isn't nearly the same player with Conley on the floor well this is how the logic of Joe coming off the bench started early in the year and that didn't work it didn't we can, you can, would it work now I can with be a cheerleader if guys, you want but it didn't work it didn't work but they've changed the guys on the bench would he be better now Playing with Clarkson. I mean, so now we're gonna we're gonna have four major changes, and we're gonna be in April. Possibly, I mean, you, you can't do that. Well, you got to arrange the puzzle pieces until they work, and they're not working right now. Not the last four games. So, I don't know what's gonna work. I can't guarantee you that. That's part of why this is so intriguing, and I want Wednesday night to hurry up and get here so I can watch the game and see what they've tried to figure out. Don't waste your life away for a sporting event, my good friend. <laughs> well, time will move at whatever rate. That it does. Exactly. Waits for no man or no nerd. So that's one of the pieces, and, and all these things uh, fit in together. It's, Quinn Snyder right now has a difficult job, and I certainly couldn't do it. And uh, he's going to have to figure it out and get guys. I don't believe there's such a thing as too much talent. So you got to get it organized right yeah. so that it plays off each other. And if guys aren't willing to sacrifice their game for the good of the team, then well, that's a problem. I don't want you on there. Yeah. Because it's all about winning. I mean, Conley's not going to get any more money or any less money um, whether they win or lose. They're, it's all, all there. They're all making huge amounts of money. And I don't think Conley really concern, is concerned about that. I don't think he cares about his personal stats. I think he cares about winning. I think one thing to, to be ironed out here is just simply when everyone's confident and knows what they're supposed to do, you play faster. Any hesitation makes you way easier to defend. And so if they're figuring out, should I defer to this guy, should I defer to that guy, if they can get that ironed out, it'll make them better. Because just that hesitation is a problem. It enables the defense to recover, reset. When they're at the best, we all know, the ball's moving like this, and there's never a chance for the defense to recover once they get put into a scramble. Okay, the I blood. agree with that. And so and if you, if you get a little better offensively, because we had Ben on earlier and he made the good point, they've struggled at both ends of the floor, more defensively than offensively. But as Quinn has said about 50,000 times in a postgame, if you get the offense going good and the other team's pulling the ball out of the net, one, you have more time to set your defense, and two, it's what you always say, the old Steve Cleveland quote, you know, if you score, you bring more energy to defending. If you're hesitating, you run the offense, someone has to take a tough shot because the clock's running down. Now, it's, you, you got to worry about getting beaten transition, and you don't have the same energy level because you're still, you're still mad that you screwed it up on the offensive end and didn't get a bucket. Yeah, but that, 
hesitancy can start way early in the shot clock. It does. Who gets the ball? Where do they get it? Right, yeah. So it could already be there before you even cross half court, before the defense is even set up. Is who's doing what? They've got to iron this out. This return and putting Mike in a starting lineup has all sorts of domino effects. True. And how does it play out? And so far it's played out with nothing but losses. And so what are they going to do to correct it? I don't know if there's an easy solution. I, don't, I wonder if guys can coexist and get even close to the level of their abilities. They have too much talent and the pieces don't fit. I don't see. I don't think there's such thing as too much talent. Well, then what's the problem if they can't coexist? It's not too much talent. It's, it's, it's too redundant. It's skill set complementing other skill right. sets. Yeah, the, it's redundant, and guys are getting in each other's way. Yeah. So it's not about the talent. Talent is what it is. It's how does the talent mesh? You know, they have enough talent to win fifty games. That's what they've done the last three that, years. That, to me, is the goal obvious. The goal of making but, these moves was to turn into a 55-win team. Right. So you improve the talent, but that doesn't necessarily mean you improve, you improve the individual talent, but do you improve the collective team talent? Now, I think what's probably going to have to happen is that these losses now are necessary for the development of the team. You'd want the wins... But the point being that they're going to need transition time and discovery time to, to figure make all out. The, to make all the pieces fit. Because this is a brand new lineup that they did not use when Mike was healthy earlier in the season. And the rotations are different. For, it's two different, basically three different things. You've got O'Neal out. That's one. Ingles in. That's two. Clarkson in. That's three. Plus, Conley is basically new because of the injuries in and out of the lineup. So that's four. Yeah, I was thinking there's three phases of this season. There's that first phase where they're 13 and 11. The bench isn't good enough. Conley's healthy. Conley gets hurt. They make a bunch of moves with the bench, the Clarkson-Exum trade being the biggest one. And then they, have a, they end up having a really good run there. Now you got Mike back. So that's another thing. And it's you like look, the third look for the team You this look season. at the teams that they're competing with. Now, they've got new guys, but everybody darn well knows in Los Angeles, we're in the purple and gold. I fit around them. They don't fit around me. <laughs> and by them, you, know? you mean LeBron. <laughs> yeah. And Anthony Davis. Right. And so yeah, as long as those two can work, yeah. then you darn well better work or I'm going to run you out of town. They, every one of those guys outside of those two dudes. And Kuzma's had some issues. They just know. And Kuzma's going to have to sacrifice, obviously, because it's about those two. And it's the same thing in the same building. Okay, Lou Williams, you're going to get your shots. There's enough shots, particularly when you coming off the bench. With you coming off the bench, you're going to get your shots. But other than that, we're going to go through Kawhi and Paul George because they are really good. So those other dudes, they know that. Well, the Jazz don't really have an absolute. Yeah, Mitchell's on the come, and he's going to get his. But still, you got other guys, and one of them being a. 12-year veteran who's played in an extremely high level. If he was a three-year veteran, it might be different, but he's not. (laughs) He's a 12-year guy who has a track record of outstanding ball. 
And Joe needs to be able to do for, for Joe to flourish, the team has to allow him to flourish. But you don't need to run your offense through three guys. It's hard to do. Donovan's going to initiate a chunk of the offense. Joe was initiating a big chunk of the offense. And now Mike is going to initiate a big chunk of the offense. Well, that's three guys initiating a big chunk of the offense. So they got to figure that out because you can't have that. No. And at times, it worked pretty well. Early in that game, I thought it was it, it jumped out at me early in that Portland game. Joe had the ball. They're going right to left. And Conley's on the, right on the sideline. Uh, and the, the defender comes out to kind of – he knows where the ball's going. He starts to jump into that passing lane. Conley goes back door. Joe hits him. Mike gets a layup. And you're like, this can work. That was easy. <laughs> that was beautiful. High IQ thing. Everybody adjusted on the fly. It was smooth. And they're running back on defense with energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Right. So, Joe can be a high-level role player if you allow him, or he could be a mediocre role player. What's it going to be? And if if he's just required, or not required, but asked to stand over there and just basically take set shots... And he can do that, but there's so much more to his game that allows him to be just pretty doggone effective. So how do they set this up so that Donovan, Mike Conley, Joe Ingles, two of them are always on the floor? Now at times when they're playing big minutes, maybe three of them are on the floor and that's fine, but never have one of them on the floor. Always have two of them on the floor. I suspect that coaches are playing around with the math because there's multiple ways yeah, to do yeah. that, and they got to pick their favorite way. I don't know that I have answers to any of that stuff, but what I do know is I'll sit back and watch, and if it works, I'll praise them. If it doesn't work, I'll criticize them. <laughs> that's, that's the reality of my job. I, I don't sit here and say, man, I've got answers to this and this and this. No, i got a bunch of questions, but I don't know that I've got any answers. But I do know that I have a good level of faith in Quinn Snyder and his guys to figure it out. That's the most important thing. Well, they have figured out a lot. of. I mean, this is the issue this season. There have been other issues other seasons. Yeah. And they've always had a better record in the second half of the season than they've had in the first of the season. Whatever their issues well, are, we're in the second half now. they have figured them out as they've gone along. I know. And we can all go look at the record in the first half of the season and think, are you going to top it again? Maybe that streak's going to no. get broken at some point. But most of the time... Well, they would win 60 games then. No, no. So they're going backwards this year. Well, backwards relative to the great start, though. So can you keep that pace? No, that's what I'm saying. If that, they kept that pace, they would have won 60 games. Well, win sixty games. You got to be really good. You got to be. Well, they were got to be almost a lock to get to the were, finals. They were twenty eight and thirteen halfway through the season. So that would be a fifty six win pace if they matched it. Yeah, but that's somewhat misleading because once you hit after the middle of December, it was much better than that pace. That's why I don't look at numbers and just take numbers at a hundred percent value. No, once we got past worse. December fifth or sixth, and you got Clarkson on, it was way better right. than that. But that, those first twenty four games. And you're right. The next 17 were great. But those first 24, they were 13 and 11. And we were having discussions like this as far as tone. It was different issues. But like, man, they got to figure this out. Well, but I look at when they made the substantial changes. That was their ball club, not the first 24 ball games. Well, that wasn't, not gonna that's top, not their ball club now. They're not going to top 19 and 2 with a 20 Obviously not. run. Obviously I get not. that. And we're, not, I, we're not asking that. We're asking them to play to the level of their ability. 19-2 and two is above their level of ability, and some of that was scheduling and whatnot, and they were hot. And now you got to find out ways to grind 
win ball games when you grind. That Dallas game that we had a couple of Saturdays ago, that was a grind out win. That's why I was so excited because everything just didn't happen. It didn't It wasn't flow. so easy. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Guys smiling because they know the ball's going in and it doesn't matter who's taking three, it's going in no matter who's taking it. Well, that's a, that's, they, a, that's nothing that's going to be sustained. They trailed for more than 46 minutes in that game yeah. and they still won. Right. They and, had, I think they had four leads for a minute and 19 seconds. And that's what got yeah. me so excited thinking, okay, that's the mark of a great team. Because when you're playing well and everything's going great, fine, you ought to be able to win and you got the home crowd. But they didn't have that on that Saturday afternoon. But they still gutted it out. And that's why I came away so impressed thinking, all right, man, Conley's back. You know, he's going to play a role. Maybe not the role we thought, but he's still going to play a role because he had a couple of big hoops, if I remember, in that game. He took the ball to the basket, and he can do his thing, and he can really supplement and add to what's going on. And then they go in the slump. Now, I'm hopeful that that's just what it is. If it's a slump, then by definition, it's for a shorter period of time. That's what a slump is, right? But we And we associate slump with hitting in baseball and we've seen over the years that the guys who go into a slump in the month of may have a tour of june if 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 you have a track record right we've seen that a million times yes we have and so here i'm hoping that this is just a slump and this time off that they have has allowed them to regroup and figure stuff out to better utilize the talent because they have a lot of talent to better utilize it and then they go and they win their fair share of games not 19 and 2 but whatever that might be, what are you talking about? 54, 55 wins? Uh, if they got to 55, mm. I think you declare victory. They've, been, they've clearly been a 50-win team. It's been 48, 50, and 51. Not in that order, but those are the three seasons. And then they make these moves. And basically, it's, it's moving favors. They were defensive-oriented. They sacrificed offense to have really good defense by having favors and Rudy both on the roster. And now they've sacrificed some defense to have more offensive firepower. And in the process of that, was it just a swap and you're a 50-win team? I don't think anyone believes it's going to move them backwards and they're going to end up a 45-win team. The question is, did it move them forwards and did it become a 55-win? Is forwards? Yes. Is that really a word? Well, different than backwards. Forward is a definitely, definitely a word. PK. You're starting forwards, but moving forwards? Moving forwards. Forward. No S. <sighs> yeah. Moving backward. No S. Backwards. Don't go backwards on me in my grammar. I think for me the question is, can this ball club win 50-whatever, fill in the blank, if it's 52, 55, whatever it might be, and get to three seed? If I offer you that now, and we can hit this tomorrow because it's late in the show now, if I offer you 50-whatever, whatever whatever second number you want, and a three seed, do you take it? Okay, I'll give you my answer right now because I decided this a long time ago. If they are the three seed, declare victory and move on. I would sign off on that. I'm already done. The ink is drying right now. If you tell me they win 55 games and still they don't get to the three seed, I'm not happy about it, but I declare victory and move on. You made yourself better. The fact a bunch of stars coalesce together on other teams, you can't control that. If you get to 55 wins, you made yourself better. I would rather be the three seed than have the 55 wins, but if they get either one of them, it's a step forward. All I'm right. waiting. Shoot me down, PK. Well, you we said we got to go to break, but I got. Yeah, I, we've ignored Yak before. Nothing personal, Yak. But you well, know. Then, then my question for you is, what is the seed? You told me 55, well, but you I didn't tell me the seed. You're in the four five series of 55. You won't be lower than that. I don't know that I declare victory on that. Yeah, you up yourself five games. I don't care about that. 
Well, you made yourself better. That's all you can control. Well, you, you can't. You, con- no, you're going to determine yourself better in the postseason, not in the regular season. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. And now, attention, top of the wire on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Chris Porzingis goes for 38 points and 12 rebounds. He just had 35 and 12 against Houston in a loss. Now he has 38 and 12 and a win over the Indiana Pacers. He's putting up huge numbers while Luka Doncic is out. Doncic has missed three games now. Clippers, 108-105, winners over the Spurs. The 76ers' problems continue. They go to Miami. They get blown out. 137-106, to 106, the final score. NBA action tonight, Spurs and Lakers, 8 o'clock on TNT. Former Stanford starting quarterback K.J. Costello will join Mississippi State as a grad transfer and play his final season for Mike Leach in Starkville. Top of the Wire brought to you by Minky Couture. What are you giving your Valentine? Make it a special personal gift for Minky Couture. Learn more at MinkyCouture.com. Big Show. Big Show with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott. Are you ready? You guys ready? Chris Mannix. What did you think about the Jazz moving Mike Conley back into the starting lineup that kind of eased him back into it after coming back from the, the hamstring injury, but that lineup before was playing so well in that run? Yeah, I mean, I think you had to do it. It's a smart move to ease Mike back into the rotation, but now that he's got his legs under him, you've got to force-feed him those minutes alongside Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and get that chemistry going because a healthy Mike Conley is pretty much the only way the Jazz have a shot at winning the West. Simple as that. I mean, having him playing and playing at a high level is is all they can do there. Turn this up. Catch the Big Show, presented by Mountain America Credit Union. Afternoons from 3 to 7 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ, PK, we are brought to you in part by Larry H. Miller, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, and Sandy. Find your deals online at lhmdeals.com. Time now to welcome in Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. He joins us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest you. Brandon, good morning. Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Good. Curious your take on the, the changes in recruiting with the new early date. We're used to the February date, but now we have the December one. Kyle Whittingham here has said that, uh, you know, from the get-go, 50% of the recruits took advantage of the early signing. He says now it's up 80 90%. And we're also finding, though, if you're not in the Power Five, maybe you're hanging back and February's still a bigger deal for you. That seems to be how it's playing out in Utah. Is that how it's playing out across the rest of the country? It is, and especially schools that had a coaching change, whether it was before the early signing period or even may have had one after the signing period, those are the ones that tend to be filling out their classes by tomorrow. But, yeah, I would say the majority of schools have signed their classes. I think there's you know six or seven Pac-12 schools that I know for sure. When they hit the road the last two weeks, it was just to look at 21 and 22 kids. Instead of 2020, their chapter of this book is done, and, and they're moving on to the next class. So how does the Utes compare to the rest of the Pac-12? Well, I think in the case of the Utes, I mean, they kind of took advantage of the early signing period, meaning that a lot of their activities seemed to happen on that Thursday and Friday after. So they still ended up with a good chunk of guys that were a part of that first initial class in December. Uh, But then at this point right now, I think they only had 
you know, 14 guys signed letter of intent, or 16 guys, two of them already enrolled. And so they've got about four or five more guys that have committed since then. And then they've also got some transfers that have come in. So I would say that probably Utah and Washington State have been the most active post the December signing period. In Washington State's case, they didn't sign a huge class to begin with. And then when Mike Leach left, they only had one guy asked out of his letter of intent, but Nick Rolovich is trying to fill up the class with a bunch of more guys that he was targeting when he was at Hawaii. So I would say Utah and Washington State are really the only two that have a lot of action going by tomorrow. So you bring up transfers, and you know people are going to go back and look. If you have, people haven't been to your website, you do a good job of breaking stuff down in previous years and by school and high school recruits by state. So it really lends itself to people going back and analyzing and seeing who hit and were the rankings right and all that. But the whole X factor now is there's so many transfers. Are you going to try and grade that out, or is that just a separate thing aside from recruiting and recruiting isn't as important the more transfers we have how's that all going to shake out for you i think you'll eventually see a time where transfers may factor into the rankings a little bit more i don't know how that's done i mean is it a guy who transfers he's been a three or four year starter decides he wants to do you know grad school at a different program maybe a bigger program but he was an impact guy a guy like a kj costello leaving stanford as a three-year starter and going to mississippi state that would be what i consider an impact transfer but then you know you have guys that leave because they haven't gotten on the field in three or four years they end up at a school who has an absolute dire need at that position and the guy becomes very very valuable to them despite not really having proven anything on the field in four years how do you factor that in so i I think at some point there may be a way to factor them in but i just think it's the nature of the beast And, and i don't necessarily think that the transfers are any different than they were before. It's just now they're much more public because of the portal rather than in the old days when schools were able to block a kid and basically bully the kid into state. Can you give us a ranking in the Pac-12, maybe the top five or six? Top five or six transfers coming in? No, no, uh, just overall recruiting. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I would say you know the, the top five recruits coming into the Pac-12 probably – Oregon's got the top two with Justin Flo and Noah Sewell coming in, the top inside linebacker, one-two punch, and the Pac-12's probably seen in you know 20 years. Uh, Washington has a very elite receiver in Jalen McMillan coming in. Utah has one of the best corners in the country in Clark Phillips, so they were able to flip from Ohio State. He's already on campus. you got him already there. Uh, and then you have... Uh, you know, some guys that are committed to Stanford. Stanford, again, has a very strong class, and, and that group is led by one of the top players in, in all of the country, in John Humphrey, a receiver out of Southern California. And then they got a running back whose dad did a little damage in the NFL, a kid named E.J. Smith, who's from Dallas. Mm-hmm. I think we all could figure out who, who the father is there. But, you know, between E.J. Smith, Barry Sanders Jr., Christian McCaffrey, I'd say Stanford continues their run of pulling in some very nice legacies in the backfield. So, uh, yeah, we all watched uh, EJ commit there, and Emmett was sitting right next to him, so that was nice. So now you get these high-end guys, and certainly you need those, but you also need depth. So now rank the top five or six schools, and we'll all be listening for where you put USC because we didn't hear those letters (laughs) in the last answer. How do you rank the top five or six schools in the Pac-12? Well, if you're only giving me five or six, we will not hear USC again because they are – not even in single digits. We got Oregon at the top, Washington number two, Stanford number three, Arizona State number four, and Utah number five. 
all five of those schools are, are, I think, you know, very excited with what they've been able to do. Actually, with the exception of Stanford, you know, Utah and Arizona State, Oregon, all capitalizing on really good seasons this year. Washington had kind of a down year, but they've had enough momentum built under Chris Peterson that they didn't lose a single recruit once he announced his retirement from Washington. Stanford continues to recruit nationally, so we'll see if the 2019 season was a little bit of an aberration. Uh, you know, Utah has been probably the most fascinating, though, and I'm not just saying that because that's where I'm on. It really is fascinating because of where they started Probably the beginning of December, if you look at the days leading up to the Pac-12 championship game, Utah was in double digits in the Pac-12. And then the way they closed between Flip and Clark Phillips, which was obviously huge for them, but then landing so many key in-state guys, Dan Fillinger, Xavier Carlton, Nate Ritchie, going out into Hawaii and getting a four-star offensive lineman in Solotola, Moai out of Punahou. Um, you know, those were key pickups for them. But then also, they too, We've got a couple of key transfers in Jake Bentley, and then you've got some of the commits that they've landed since then. You know, Keanu Tunnabasa, Polynesian All-American, out of Mission Diego, Fabian Marks out of Texas. I like how Utah is closing. They closed really well in the December signing period. They're closing again well right now. So do you factor in these grad transfers when you do your recruiting rankings? Yeah, we, in some ways, capacity, you, you have to. I don't know how much of it is in, in a numerical way. There's some grad transfers that actually have a rating uh, on them, and those are guys like a case like a Jake Bentley, who was rated out of the transfer. He was a three-year starter at right. South Carolina. So he's a guy you have to factor in. But I'm still trying to figure out the engineering side of it, just how much those guys – if they actually factor into the rankings or if they just earn some kind of rating as a graduate transfer. Because if that was the case, Oregon State's class would end up being ranked pretty high. Nobody has hit the transfer poll harder than Oregon State has the last two years. So in the case of like a guy like Jake Bentley, he's rated as a four-star, as a transfer. Skylar Sudman rated as a three-star, as a transfer. But I don't believe either of those factor into the overall team ranking just because they're transfers and not incoming recruits. Is Jim Moore making uh, headway, or Jim Moore? Um, thank you, Chip Kelly making headway at UCLA. Uh, you know, it's hard to tell because their recruiting is so much different than Jim Moore. I mean, Jim Moore would offer a ton of guys, get a lot of early interest, get a lot of guys that were local, get a lot of guys that were national, and then they didn't seem to put out a great product on the field. Chip Kelly has a completely different recruiting approach. At one point in this recruiting cycle, only Stanford had offered less players in the country out of the Power Five schools than UCLA. They kind of went a little bit more of this deliberate approach, and it didn't necessarily work all that great. Then they had a little bit of momentum in the middle of the season when they won a couple games in a row and ended up landing about eight commits in about a two-week span, including a couple from Georgia, three guys from St. John Bosco in Southern California. So there appears to be a little momentum. They're actually just behind Utah in the top tw- or in the uh, top of the Pac-12 team rankings. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be the star power like some of the Jim Moore classes we were used to. There's only two players that are in the top 247 that are committed to UCLA. So when you look at UCLA and USC's recruiting, and you consider that they're both in, you know one of the most bountiful and plentiful recruiting um, crops in the United States for them to be sixth and 10th respectively in the PAC 12, you know, is uh, why both those coaches are drawing some criticism from their fans and from the media because they're not putting great products on the field and they're backing it up by not having great recruiting efforts to show for. 
From your view, what makes a coach a good recruiter? To me, it's a couple of things. One, it's having a very good, smart plan in place. And whether that's, you know, being active on social media, being active and sending your coaches out, making a a big deal of when your coaches hit the road, when you're, you know, a visible face on high school campuses, when guys are taking unofficial visits and you see the head coach just as much as you see the recruit on the unofficial visit, you know that that coach has a good plan. You look at a guy like Mario Cristobal and what he's done at Oregon. I mean, there's... You know, a reason he was the pack or I'm sorry, the national recruit of the year a couple of times when he was at Alabama as the offensive line coach, he's brought that mentality to the Pac-12 and really kind of uh, you know commanded that his assistant coaches be aggressive recruiters, form these relationships. When you talk to a kid and he visits Oregon, he talks about the energy he feels from the coaching staff on that visit. So it's something that trickles down from the head coach and his entire assistant coaching staff. And then the admin and the staffers that are all a part of the recruiting process, they're just as involved. That, to me, is a coach that's a good recruiter that understands how important recruiting is to it. You can't just be an X's and O's guy if you're a college coach. You've got to be able to recruit. You've got to be able to you know, communicate and, and you know, hit it off with these guys because they're the ones that are giving you the next four or five years of your life. You have to be able to relate to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or whoever is involved in the recruiting process. And you have a lot of coaches that just want to be these mad scientists and college football coaches, but they don't cultivate the relationships. And then they wonder why, or their fan base wonders why they're not getting great recruits. It's because the coaches aren't doing anything to really make that kid feel welcome. And that's what recruiting so much is. It's just making the kid feel like that's the place he wants to be, that he's comfortable being there. BYU scheduling more Power 5 teams going forward. Are they recruiting well enough to play that schedule? And I guess secondarily, do you feel like you can really evaluate it that well with so many guys going on missions? Does it become a little a little too tricky to say anything definitive? Well, it's not as hard because you still see a lot of the guys that are coming back. They weren't, It wasn't that long ago that they were in part of the recruiting process, so you remember them. Even the guys that are leaving now to, to maybe not return until the 2022 season, you still are able to evaluate them, but you then do it with the caveat that these guys are going to be a couple years older, maybe bigger, stronger, or, or whatever, when they return. So, you know, you do factor that in, in in some case, but you also see there's enough guys that are coming in this class that are expecting to play right away. So a guy like a Cody S, who's coming out of modern-day high school, nobody in the country played a tougher schedule than modern-day this last year over the last – Three seasons, they've won two national championships, and they were number two this year after beating St. John Bosco, who ended up winning it all. Cody Epps was their featured receiver this year. His teammate Bryce Young, who's going to Alabama, was the national player of the year. So Cody Epps was a big-time target who's been going up against elite DBs every single week. That's the kind of guy that's going to be able to come in and have an impact early on. Then you get a guy like Micah Harper, a three-star corner out of Arizona, who's very, very good. He's a flyer. He, he can absolutely run. You got some guys that are in the Juco rank, like Chris Jackson, who you're bringing in to expect to play right now. So there, there's enough guys coming in that are going to be on campus and playing this fall that I, I think they absolutely, when we factor in the returning missionaries, they, they absolutely can compete against that national schedule. And obviously the key is continuing to recruit well at the quarterback position so you at least have the offensive firepower to compete with those teams that you're scheduled. So what's the deal with SC then? (laughs) 
that's the million dollar question because it wasn't just two, three years ago where USC finished in the top five class. It wasn't, you know, three years ago that they were number one in the, in the Pac 12 and closed incredibly well. But then you spend an entire year with the worry of Clay Helton. Is he going to be fired? Is he going to be retained? And then the extended wait, even a week after the season, when there was still a possibility USC could win the South if Utah were to lose their final Pac-12 game. So USC kind of forced their their own hand. And a lot of the top players in Southern California are leaving, not just the state of California, they're leaving the region altogether. They're leaving the Pac-12 footprint. And USC, those are players they would have normally have signed. Justin Flo, a DJ or a Bryce, the, the two best quarterbacks in the country. Those are players that USC typically would have signed. But now you've got a lame duck coaching staff for now a second year, a lot of transition on those coaching staff and not much stability, so USC ends up in a situation where they've only got 12 commits, four already on campus, they've got eight other commits, and then last night they ended up getting a commitment from Jack Yari. Now, what was fascinating about Jack Yari is this is a USC legacy. His dad was the number one pick in the NFL draft as an NFL Hall of Famer. He's a college football Hall of Famer. He's the son of a USC alum. He committed to USC and then decommitted. USC was able to get him back in the fold, but one of his big questions when he decommitted was, A, how are they going to use a tight end in their offense? And B, is Clay Helton even going to be here to coach me? So when you've got even the legacies, the ones that normally wouldn't have needed really much of any reason to go there, even they're questioning their decision to go to USC. That puts USC in the predicament when they're in where they're number 10 in the conference, not number 10 in the country. All right, well, you paint quite the picture there, and uh, I guess the good news for SC is they got enough talent coming back. They ought to be good this year, even if they got to pay the piper down the line. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's one of those cases, too, where is this a exception or is this becoming the rule? You know, and that's where I think the rest of the Pac-12 kind of has to look at this entire process now. If there's ever a time to really hit Southern California hard, if there's ever a time to really – take the dominance away from something from USC and UCLA in a sense in recruiting it's right now because players have never left more in the droves that they've left this year look at a guy like Clark Phillips I mean Utah gets him he's an Ohio State commit for months and then commits to Utah and then ends up on campus I mean that's kind of where we're at in the Pac-12 where you UW Oregon USC and Arizona State really are recruiting and almost in a sense picking who they want rather than having to go in and really try to have a tough battle against an SC or UCLA. Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right, there it is, PK. Your Devils and the Utes doing pretty well and SC struggling. They could have a good year this year, but then it sounds like they're going to be hurting. A couple of bad seasons. Recruiting. The Trojans have a good year this year. Is, this, is that what you're saying? I think they have a lot of starters back. So assuming they don't need the depth that the recruiting should provide, uh-huh. they should still be pretty good this year. Uh, but, yeah, I, I get your point. Yeah. But after that, unless they, they, they get a killer cl- class coming in, then they and, can play right away. Yeah, supplement it with some transfers. Yeah, you, you just don't know about this. These these are good barometers to see, and I think they're somewhat accurate, but they're not completely and totally reflective of how it's going to play out. Your feedback coming up next. Stay with us. And it's all over almost here. Don't go nowhere. Feedback of the day is brought to you by Audi Salt Lake City, where you can pick up a new Audi Q5 SUV for only $3.59 per month. Visit Audi Salt Lake City at 999 South State Street or AudiSaltLakeCity.com. 
After beating St. Mary's, ESPN Bracketology has BYU as a seven seed. Poll question up at David DJ James. Do you care about Bracketology now? 31% yep, 69% nope. Jeff Dart at Dart Ute. As a Utah fan, I can confidently say I haven't cared about Bracketology in years. <laughs> and then in parentheses, sobs uncontrollably. He's one of those people you always talk about, the hardcore Ute fans. It matters to them. That's they love good, it. That's a good joke for him to send in, though. I thought it was pretty funny. That is funny, yeah. I mean, obviously, they don't look like they're going to be a tournament team. They're going to have to win it, uh, and, which doesn't seem possible at this point. But, yeah. What would it be? Is there, this will be their fourth year if they don't go? Yeah. And BYU's already four? Yeah. And so the Cougars have a decent chance, unless they just fall apart or get hurt or whatever, to break that. And the Utes will go into next season likely with four years in a row. Working on five. Wow. Vegas Ute. One sad but true side effect of Utah men's basketball not being nationally relevant is that it's dulled my interest in the entire sport of college hoops. Oh, I, would, I can see that. Yeah, I yeah. would agree with that completely. I would think normally that would happen when you don't have a dog in the hunt. You, you lose interest in the whole thing. Snazzy Cougs. Uh, we were talking earlier about should BYU play the Pac-12 since Pac-12 will never let them in the league. Snazzy Cougs says BYU uses the Pac-12 for schedule fillers when they're not playing P4 teams. Oh, so See what they a did shot there? towards the Cougars or shot? Uh-huh. No, shot? that's a uh-huh. shot towards the Pac-12 not being a Power Five league, or their Power Five league. But that's really only name only. Oh, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Okay. BYU uses I, the okay, Pac-12 yeah, for yeah. schedule fillers when they're not playing P4 teams. And you'd give your left one to be in the conference. Well, <laughs> sure. Bingo. That wasn't the question. <laughs> I think you should be in. I wish they would have taken you instead of Colorado. Oh, would have kept that whole two teams in every state thing going. Yeah. That would have been cooler. We would have had USC every year instead of every other year. We would have had UCLA every year instead of every other year. Because they would be playing BYU? Yeah. Yeah, I got you. I follow you. Yeah. Assuming that, I assume BYU would have gone into the Pac-12 South. Just replace Colorado. Right, but that's not happening. Didn't happen, isn't going to happen. No, it sucks. All right, we're out of time. Tony and Austin are up next. We'll see you tomorrow.